Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. When people think of Yiddish literature, theater, or music, we associate the culture with Eastern Europe. In her new book, Honey on the Page, Emory University professor Miriam Udell extends the map with a diverse set of contributors from many places. Later this hour, she'll tell us about this collection of Yiddish children's stories, which she collected and translated to English. The Emmy Award-winning comedy writer and stand-up comic Greg Fitzsimmons wrote a memoir called Dear Mrs. Fitzsimmons, Tales of Redemption from an Irish Mailbox. In our conversation, the Irish-American comic recalls a very funny story from his early days doing stand-up at a Jewish singles club in Boston. First, a new stand-up special from a comedian known for his outrageous display of temper. In January of this year, comedian Louis Black embarked on the It Gets Better Every Day tour. Yeah, with plans to film his comedy special as the tour ended. After 22 live shows, the U.S. government declared a state of emergency in response to the mounting pandemic. It did not get better every day, and suddenly faced with canceling the rest of his tour, Black took to the stage one last time before the lockdown on March 13th. That performance at the Four Winds Casino in New Buffalo, Michigan, was renamed Thanks for Risking Your Life. The show begins streaming today. And I got to talk with Lewis Black Monday morning. Here's our conversation. What went through your mind over the past six months as you rewatched and prepared the show for release? Well, I mean, it was mostly uh, what went through my mind was, can we get it out while it still makes sense to get it out as a, you know, as a special? 
And it's, you know, because it's not the normal special. It doesn't, we didn't shoot it as a special. It was shot uh, by accident because we have two cameras that we had running. There are two cameras that the casino had that were running to kind of get, you know, they do large screens so that people can see in the back. You know, they, they do a, a screenshot of of the performer, me. So we have four cameras. Normally you have six cameras, eight cameras, ten cameras. You have the audience is lit. Uh, the audience is mic. None of that. So it was really a lot of time was spent trying to put it together so that it, it, it presented itself in some fashion that made made sense as a special on some level. And I think that's really what went through our minds was to try to get it out while it, because really it would have come out, what we would have done was shot it in September and gotten it done quickly and edited it and gotten it out then. Of, uh, you know, and so we kind of wanted to get it out but when it still had made made some sense for it to be a special. And what has gone through my mind since from people watching it and talking to me was is that, uh, that they, it seems to have worked. It has worked beautifully. These are great times. They really are. We've now discovered uh, a whole new way of not getting done. (laughs) For the last 30 years, no other country on earth is more accomplished than having more and being able to do less with it. Yeah. I don't even expect you to laugh. And I don't give a if you do or no. Because you know it's true. We have roads that need to be fixed. Why? Why would we do that? We've got to argue about it. There's no reason to argue about fixing the road. There's nothing political about a road, is there? It's a fucking road. There's no politics in the road. Why? Because there's a left side and a right side. We've done something with these two political parties that really is unbelievable. No other country has done it. No other country. We used to have parties that argue ideas. Ha <laughs> ha, not anymore. Now we have two, two separate political parties that actually exist in two totally different realities. And if you didn't laugh at that, fuck you. This week, the events of this past week may make some things land even more impactfully. Now, early in the show, you mentioned the marvel of today's shipping. Have you done a lot of stress shopping in these last six and a half months? No, I've been very good. Every so often. <laughs> I, every so, you know, what I've done is a lot of stress um, kind of, here's what I've done is it, it, it's been kind of unusual because partly there's nothing really that I, I kind of look at something and go, this is, all this is going to remind me is, is that I can't do anything. <laughs> so I can't buy this. This is something that uh, I can't use, you know, so I'd be, you know, it's like people are going, boy, you can get this, uh, this new uh, sport coat, but it's 70% off. Well, where am I going to wear it? I'm not going to be wearing it, but I'm going to wear it around the house. Really? Um, what I've done is stress. They'll send me stuff that, but you know, and this is not to say that I'm altruistic. It's really out of stress in part and guilt. But you know, also to the USO the other day sent something about, you know, we need to get stuff to our soldiers in terms of 
packs of things that they need, like toothpaste, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are really, you know, kits that they can really use. And then I see that and I go, oh, my God, the soldiers need this. And, um, and I go online and immediately send out send out wow. something. Or there's, or there's people who need something. Or there's a, uh, you know, there's some sort of a, there's a variety of, of charities at this point, food banks, et cetera. But I'm doing it in part instead of because it's partly guilt and partly stress. I'm like, oh, God, look at what's happening. Oh, I, I can help them. And a lot of it has to do with just not being able to get out and doing normally what you would do in order to live a life that you would kind of be involved in the community yeah. on some level. It used to be depressing, not anymore. Because now you think, this would be a perfect time to buy that Barca lounger. <laughs> you take out your smartphone, you bring up the Barca lounger. It's this big, isn't it? And you make it bigger, bigger until it fills the screen. That's a miracle. <laughs> then you pick the color, everything you want. Do you want to have a place to put your beer? That's why I'm buying it. <laughs> then you hit the button. It's going to come in two days. You're so excited you can barely get your pants on. You kick open the door, you're dancing around. I'm going to have a Barca lounger. I'm going to have a Barca lounger. Well, that in and of itself, your goodness, um, is counter to your trademark anger shtick that comes through your irascibility. I became familiar with you first on The Daily Show and loved your appearances, but I also feared for you. I, I was afraid you'd burst an artery in your head. <laughs> Lewis, do you go through life with that explosive intensity, or is your ranting part of a character you play? Well, no, it was, um, as I said time and again, if I was, uh, if I, if I acted like that all the time, if that was the way in which I lived, I'd be dead within 36 hours. So no, I, it's, it's really uh, partly the character, but it's also, I'm funniest when I'm angry, but I do get that angry. Certain things will set me off. You know, if I see something completely insane, I will respond. I will respond to the insane person as an insane person <laughs> would respond. To, and that's the way I do it. Some of you don't know about Prevagen because you stop watching news on television because you believe it is fake news. Or, you know, you have family members that you visited maybe on Thanksgiving and they told you that they don't watch news on TV anymore because they believe it's fake news. And that must have been a fun Thanksgiving meal. <laughs> I'm here to tell you, if you've watched news as long as I have, anyone who's watched news for a long, long time knows better. There's no fake news, okay? When I was a child, we would sit around the table, be my mother, my father, my brother, Ron. At the end of the table, on the television was Walter Cronkite. I thought he was there because maybe he was a cousin or something. <laughs> I've been watching news all my life on TV. And what you learn is really simple. And that is, there is not fake news because those aren't smart enough to make it up. <laughs> it's news for brains. It's that simple. It's that simple. When you see something, and then you see it again, and then you see it again, 
and then you see it again, there's a reason for that. It actually happened. I am tired of political commentators on news shows. They shouldn't be there. I don't care which channel you're watching. They shouldn't be there. You want a political commentator? Then bring on a barnyard animal. They have more to say to us. Like a lamb. What did you think, lamb? Bah. Back to you. I love that you include your parents in the material for this show. Your dad passed away not long ago at age 101. Your mother, I saw, she just celebrated her 102nd birthday. And she looks phenomenal. She does. And she looks better than she did at 100. (laughs) It should happen to all of us. She does. I mean, it's crazy. Were your parents supportive of your comedy career? My father was very supportive. Uh, my mother was uh, thought I was nuts. And then after a while, as things took off, and I started to appear on television more, she was, they were coming to shows that I was doing. She started to realize that it was going much better than she realized that she finally, you know. And now she's very happy about it because it's, oh. it's allowed her to have uh, 24-7, you know, caregiving. She's got caregivers. She's got 24-7 care, which is really, uh, really important at this point. I'm very lucky to be able to do that. Oh, and it's so wonderful that you recognize that. In the closing credits, there's a photo of your parents with the caption, thanks to Sam and Jeanette. And before that appears, your show closes with... You're telling the audience in New Buffalo, take care, be well, I love you. That's the real you, isn't it, Lewis? Well, you know, (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's the real me is the optimist. The real me is someone who believes that we all basically want the best for everyone. That's really the real me. And that's why I scream, because uh, we can do better. We can always do better. This what we're doing now is beyond my comprehension. This we are really the United States of Sisyphus. We push the rock up the hill and we get it almost to the top and then it rolls down again. And now we're gonna push it up again. So here we go. But I think I think we've got enough people to do it, so uh, I'm I'm still optimistic. We're psychotic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. But I think the show is fabulous. And I'm so elated that we could talk again. Lewis Black, thank you very much. And best of luck with this show. We need some major laughter now. Well, thank you very, very much. I really appreciate your time, and it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Comedian Lewis Black, his new stand-up special, Thanks for Risking Your Life, will be out today and can be streamed via Amazon Prime, iTunes, Google Play, Xbox, and Vudu. Be advised of adult content for language. When the Emmy Award-winning writer and producer Greg Fitzsimmons spoke with us last year while in Atlanta on his stand-up tour, He talked about his start in comedy in the late 1980s. 
Yeah, I was in college and I was going to class during the day. And then my dream since I was a kid was to do stand up. And so there was a stand up comedy club next door to my dorm at Boston University. And so I would go to class and then at night I would hang around the club and try to get five minutes where I could. And at the time, the scene was so fertile in Boston. There were so many amazing comedians that you've never heard of. Don Gavin and Steve Sweeney and people that- Irish names. They were all Irish comedians, yes. Kenny Rogerson and Mike Donovan and- and these were guys, David Fitzgerald, they were all guys that came out, a lot of them were tough guys. They came out of South Boston and Dorchester, and they had a real attitude. They, and the crowds were tough. They were rowdy. Like Bill Burr? Bill Burr came out of that scene, and you know Dennis Leary. And so it was really like a scene where you would go into a sports bar, and they would keep the TVs on. They would have a Red Sox game playing <laughs> over your shoulder while you're trying to make them laugh. And they're doing shots of Jameson's. <laughs> Fights would break out. I got I got beat up on stage one night. No. Yes. What I, did you say that provoked that person? Well, it was a uh, it was a Jewish singles night at a club called, ironically, Stitches. <laughs> and this guy was there, and he was uh, he was he was an Israeli cab driver. And I remember because his name was Simpka. And I told him, oh, that was the name of the village idiot in Woody Allen's movie Love and Death. And so uh, the crowd laughed. And he was there because he thought he was going to meet a nice Jewish girl. But they were all girls that were going to Boston University. And they were looking to marry doctors from Harvard. And they didn't want to date a cab driver. So he was kind of crushed. And so he started heckling me. And so I naturally had to fight back. And then he... He finally looked at me and he says, nothing more. Ooh. And I said, all right, let me know when your friends get here. So he came up on stage with his <gasps> fist clenched and he came at me and I hit him in the forehead with the uh, microphone. One of those old Game of Thrones microphones <laughs> with the steel mesh over the head <laughs> yes, of it. Yes, a medieval microphone. A medieval microphone. And he, he got me in a headlock and he spun me around the stage by my neck, knocked down all the tables. The bouncers came up. They broke it up. And uh, and so the show stopped, obviously. And then they, they set up the tables again. And then the owner of the club comes up to me and he goes, all right, Fitzsimmons, you got five more minutes. Set me back up again. <laughs> and I got a standing ovation. It was my first standing ovation because it's Boston and they would rather see a fight than a comedy show any night. <laughs> God, that gives new meaning to showstopper. That's right. I should say. <laughs> I'm a showstopper. Now, how did you go from this passion for stand-up to writing comedy? Well, I was doing so much stand-up, and then we had a baby. Me and my wife had a baby. And so for the first year, I was gone so much, and it was just taking too much of a toll on my wife. And I said, I got to get off the road. So I called a few friends, and uh, I got a meeting with Cedric the Entertainer, who is one of the most talented, funny, gifted oh, people I've ever met. I love his work. And so he brought me in, and I, I sat down with him for 15 minutes, and I pitched him jokes, and he laughed, and he hired me. And so from that, and that was about 18 years ago. And since then, I've been writing for TV about half the year, and then doing stand up half the year. Yeah, I mean, you wrote for Ellen. You didn't just write for Ellen. Uh, you earned four. Daytime Emmy Awards writing and producing for Ellen DeGeneres back in the early 2000s when it began. 
What was it like during those first few seasons? It was exciting to be a part of it, like in the months before the show launched, where you were putting it together and figuring out what the elements of the show were going to be and having Ellen basically take her personality and try to imprint it on the show and including like the famous dancing which people don't realize the mandate on the show was don't take the camera off Ellen which meant we were stuck because she comes out and she does the monologue at the front of the stage but then what you call home base is where the couch is and her chair and we had to move her from the monologue spot back to home base and we said how are we going to do that with the camera on her without her turning her back to the camera and so somebody said well why don't you dance and she goes all right i'll try that so the first few shows she gets out there and she dances and she does this for a couple weeks and then she goes you know i don't know if i want to do this anymore this i'm tired and i just (laughs) i'm not feeling it some days i don't want to dance and so uh So she didn't do it one day, and the uproar from the audience was, no, you're going to dance. And she's even admitted that she doesn't enjoy the dancing anymore, but that's what the audience wanted, so that's what she did. Oh, gosh, I remember when President Obama, I guess it was before he was president, when he danced with her. Oh, that's right. That was amazing. So there you were, present at the creation. You wrote a book about your childhood, Mishaps, Greg, and it has illustrations of the original disciplinary notes from teachers to your mom, dear Mrs. Fitzsimmons. What kind of mischief did you get into as a child? I grew up Bronx Irish, and there was a very strong sense of doing the opposite of what you were told to do. That was rewarded in my family, and it was... It was the sensibility. My parents would laugh a lot of times. I'd get into trouble, and I'd I'd come home. We'd be sitting at dinner, and then my father would pull out a letter that was sent home from the school, a disciplinary report, and he would read it. And then anything could happen. I could get slapped, or I could get a big round of applause and laughter. (laughs) It all began there. It all began there. And so they would save them, and I didn't realize my mom was saving them. And I went into my aunt's basement in the Bronx about— you know, seven or eight years ago, and I found this box filled with these letters. And it was like a trophy case for them. It was like, this is what my kid did. This is how he stood up to people. And there was, you know, reports of me getting into, I got arrested a few times, spent the weekend in jail for Wait, fighting and drinking. And But this was all prep for your stand-up. Yes, exactly. This was all good fodder. And it was what the book became about. And I, I, would, I printed the letters in the book. And then in each chapter, I would talk about what was going on in my life. And a lot of it really was deep-seated problems with my father that I had as well. You know, we had a rough relationship, but I also loved him very much. And so I didn't set out to write that. I just set out to do a humorous book about the letters. And then in the year that I wrote it, I started going deeper and deeper into my relationship with my dad. And so the book was, I think, more heartfelt than I set out for it to be. Comedian Greg Fitzsimmons. His new podcast is called Sunday Papers. New weekly episodes are on his website. Our website is wabe.org slash citylights. Honey on the Page is a treasury of Yiddish children's literature. The book was 
edited and translated by Emory University Professor Miriam Udell. She is with us now via Zoom. Miriam Udell, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. I am an almost daily listener, and it is a thrill to be with you, Lois. Thank you. Well, your book contains children's literature, though the stories and poems you've selected seem ideal for reading together as a family and equally enjoyable for adults to read alone. I was hoping you would tell us about your ongoing focus group for this volume. <laughs> well, the, the focus group consists of my three sons, who are now 16, um, just on the cusp of turning 13 and four and a half. And they have been the, the testers for a lot of these stories. If, if a story or a poem could hold their interest or draw them in, then I knew I had something that would speak to other children and other families as well. Sweet. I love how you honor your first Hebrew school teacher with the title of the book. How did she win over her students? Absolutely. So the, the title of the book refers to a long-standing tradition in Jewish education, um, particularly the, the Jewish education of little boys who attended very informal schools known as cheders or chadorim, that would be the plural, um, which literally just means a room. And on the first day of class in, the, in this cheder system, the instructor would smear honey on the page of whatever primer the students were going to be using to learn the Hebrew, which is the same as the Yiddish alphabet or olive base. And when I started my own Jewish education in a much more co-educational, suburban, modern setting, our teacher wanted to do something similar, um, but she didn't want the mess of dealing with a lot of honey in a, in a school classroom. So she, she had little chocolates and she would come around to each desk and we would open our primers and she would spill out this little cascade of chocolates and we would eat those and she explained that that was going to make our learning sweet. And indeed it did. Oh, I love it. She had you a chocolate. The scope of topics in this collection is vast. The book contains 47 stories and poems. Would you talk about how you arranged the categories? Sure. So this is the first really comprehensive volume of its kind that tries to make Yiddish children's literature in some sort of representation of its totality available for the English language reader. And the first question I faced was, how am I going to organize all of this? And one possibility would have been to do so chronologically or to do so geographically. But I felt like both of those organizational schemes would kind of market as a book for specialists who are interested mostly in the history. And I really wanted to create something that would be a companion and a resource 
for families and for educators, as well as for scholars of Jewish literary history. And so I decided that I would organize it thematically. And I, I wanted to find a thematic mode of organization that would be authentic and feel true to the history of this literature, but that would also be um, beckoning and inviting for contemporary readers. And what I hit upon was a scheme that I saw in a lot of anthologies from 100 years ago, which is to move from the most distinctively and singularly Jewish content toward more universal content. And so that's why I started with Jewish holidays, history and heroes, and moved on to the kinds of folk tales, wonder tales, tales of fools, allegories and fables that we might find in any culture and its children's literature. And then on to the more universal experiences of going to school, which at least until a few months ago was a major theme in the lives of most children, and the things that we learn outside of school in life's classroom. And finally, that most universal experience of all belonging to a family, but of course with a Yiddish cultural twist. Hmm. When people think of Yiddish literature, theater, or music, we associate the culture with Eastern Europe. Let's talk about the writers you include in Honey on the Page and how you extend the map with contributors in this book. Sure. So this is a literature that begins in Eastern Europe. I think we have to go back and say a word about what Yiddish is. It is a fusion language um, whose primary components are German and Hebrew, but that also comes to contain a lot of Slavic elements, a stratum of romance elements that's very small but very old within Yiddish, and then comes to be influenced by wherever Yiddish speakers migrated. So today that means that there are um, English, American English and British English elements in Yiddish, that there's Hebrew in Yiddish. And so it's really a kind of a portable linguistic homeland that moves with the Jews through the enormous migrations of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And we see that reflected in the authorship of these tales. We also see it reflected in the settings of these tales, um, many of which, of course, are in either a very realistic or a kind of enchanted, fantastical Eastern Europe, but that also come to include Central European cities, New York City, um, Trinidad, Havana, Buenos Aires, Tel Aviv, even Casablanca, Morocco is included. So it's really a, a book that takes us all over the world in terms of both the sites of publication and the settings of these stories and poems. And this is a wonderful feature of the book. I'm glad you mentioned Trinidad because I wanted to ask you about this unusual setting for a Jewish story. Zina Rabinowitz is a great example of an author taking us somewhere beyond Europe 
or New York for that matter. Would you tell us about Senor Ferrara's first Yom Kippur? I am so excited that you asked me about this one, Lois, because I really feel that Sina Rabinovitz is one of the gems that I've unearthed in the course of this project. Her name is not widely known, but I think that it deserves to be. She published a lot in the 1950s, which means after the Holocaust, when the project of writing Yiddish children's literature really shifted from educating children in a general sense in Yiddish and to be part of a Yiddish-speaking nation and citizenry toward cultural consolidation and preservation. So her work was mostly published in Latin America, particularly in Buenos Aires, and she creates stories set in the post-war era that really try to kind of put a very fractured, very broken Yiddish-speaking and Jewish world back together again. And part of the way that she does this is by very honestly representing loss, cultural loss, assimilation, violence, and showing that there is some kind of a life for the Jewish people beyond that. So Senor Ferrara is a, um, is a character who is descended from Spanish Jews who were fleeing the Inquisition in 1492. And his family came to Trinidad and was able to find, to find freedom and survival there. And they eventually assimilated with the local population and over the course of generations and centuries became Catholic. But Senor Ferrara in his old age finds himself drawn to a small uh, population, a small synagogue of Jews who established themselves in Trinidad when they are fleeing Hitler in the 40s. They, they buy a house and they turn it into a little synagogue and Senor Ferrara is just kind of mystically drawn to that place. He first comes um, to, to kind of hang out and listen during the Kol Nidre service, which is on the, the eve of Yom Kippur, and it's a kind of liturgical climax of the Jewish year of communal prayer. And he comes back again Friday night after Friday night to witness the Sabbath prayers. And when it's time um, for him to make his last will and testament, unbeknownst to everyone, he, he decides that he can't really be buried in the Catholic cemetery. He's no longer a believer. He is at the same time not really able to be buried in the Jewish cemetery. He has no public standing as a member of the Jewish community. And so he leaves as his last will and testament the desire to be thrown into the sea next to the cliffs in, in Port of Spain, Trinidad. And that's where he finds his eternal resting place as a person who's kind of caught between these two religious communities and these two identities. So it's, it's pretty serious material, um, but it's written in a way that's actually kind of hopeful and redemptive. Emory University Professor Miriam Udell. We'll be back with more about her new book, Honey on the Page 
after a short break. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Let's return to my conversation with Emory Professor Miriam Udell about Honey on the Page, a treasury of Yiddish children's stories she collected and translated to English. There has been a great deal written about how children use stories and folk tales to understand difficult topics. Is making sense of persecution a recurring theme of these stories and poems? Absolutely. And I think that these authors were really progressive or ahead of their time in understanding that it's often best to speak very directly to children about difficult topics, about violence, about persecution, and to show them what is in their power to control, even in circumstances that are largely out of the control, even of the best meaning and most protective adults. And sometimes we see the um, violence and struggles of one generation being used to stand in for the suffering of a different generation. In 1941, Isaac Metzger publishes a life of the medieval Spanish, um, Spanish Jewish communal leader and scholar, Bible commentator, Don Yitzchak Abravanel. And Yitzchak Abravanel leads the Iberian Jewish community through the Inquisition and the expulsion from Spain. And by publishing the story of his life and really telling it as a, a noble tale of leadership in the the face of catastrophe, Metzger is offering his readers in 1941 some kind of a light and a beacon of hope through the darkest days of the Holocaust. Um, we, We see it figured there in a pretty realistic way. We also see those those fears and those sufferings make their way into even the world of fairy tale. Um, Shloyma Bastomsky creates a a fairy tale um, with all kinds of magical doings that has a, a blood libel, a false accusation against the Jewish community driving its plot. And it's a, a kind of, I would say, latter day, but it's really out of time. It's not set in any particular time period. So it's an out of time story about a community that manages to to um, band together and rebuff a false accusation. In what you just said, 
It also brings to mind how difficult, how painful it is for African Americans to tell stories of heritage, of the civil rights movement, of what's going on now, and approaching these painful topics in a way that children can understand and process. And with the chickens who wanted to learn Yiddish, though it is lighthearted, I thought about our revered late Congressman John Lewis and how as a six-year-old boy, John Lewis liked to preach to the chickens on his family farm. That's, that was his first experience as a pastor. Now, what do these New Jersey chickens ha have in mind for Pinkus, the young boy in this story? So I also read that anecdote um, at the time that Congressman Lewis um, of of blessed memory departed. And I thought, oh my goodness, Pinchas and Sarah, the children who live on a, on a Yiddish chicken farm in Toms River, New Jersey, um, it, it certainly made me think of them. So a lot of these stories speak on one level to children and on a whole other level to adults. And this is one that I think describes to adults what it means to um, make a commitment to preserving your culture. If you have any sort of a minority culture in America, whether it's an ethnicity or a nationality, a language, a minority language that you speak at home, um, there are such strong pressures to assimilate. And those are often accelerated by economic pressure. So there, were some uh, pockets of Jewish agricultural activity in southern New Jersey, um, Jewish chicken farming in particular. And it's, it's still something of a thing. If you go to a, a kosher grocery store, you can still find Vineland, New Jersey chicken. And the community in Tom's River, as described in this story, decides that even though they're living in relative isolation from the robust Yiddish cultural center in New York City, they're going to create a Yiddish after school so that their children will learn to speak a good, fine Yiddish with the parents and the grandparents. And naturally, in the course of that, um, the children are gone every day after school, and the chickens who are accustomed to playing with the, those children get restive and they miss the kids and they want to find out where are they going every day. And so the, the chickens mount their own investigation and they determine that the children are going to Yiddish school. And the chickens end up saying, well, are we not Yiddish chickens? We belong to a Jewish farmer. We want to learn Yiddish. It's our right too. And one of the chickens sneaks along to Yiddish school. And of course, the occasion for telling this whole story is that that, that rooster has um, cock-a-doodle dude in the middle of class, and the little boy who snuck him into school has to explain himself. Um, and, and I have to say that um, this is not actually the closest that Yiddish children's literature comes to thinking about the 
African-American experience, which, which is parallel in so many ways. Um, I would actually love to talk about another animal entirely, and that is Lobzik, the puppy dog, who is very concerned about, or, or at least his author, Javier Paver, is very concerned about racial equality as part of a comprehensive vision for, for social justice. So would it be okay if I took us over to, to Brooklyn toward Lobzik? Let me tell you, Miriam, that little gasp was because my next question is about Lopsik. As a dog lover, I was drawn to Lopsik, the stories of a clever pup. How does this author bring in the politics and social movements of the time? Sure. So Javier Pavar is the pen name of an author named Gershon Einbinder, who was a very committed leftist. And he wrote this book for distribution through the school system of the International Workers Order, which was a labor movement that was aligned with unapologetic communism. And it's published in 1935 as a, as a way to really educate school children in this, as I said, comprehensive vision for social justice that includes economic justice, racial equality, and to a lesser degree, a kind of proto-feminism, or at least attention to the idea that girls should be educated and have opportunities in parallel with their brothers. And so Lobzik, I call him leftist lassie, because he is the uh, focal point of every chapter, and he's always the hero of the day, and he always behaves within the range of what would be realistically possible for a dog to do. So he barks, and he wags his tail, and he licks people, and he is very, very intelligent, um, and he communicates, but he doesn't talk. We never sort of cross that line where we're good social realists who who hew to the idea that children's literature should be realistic. And so in the first chapter that I include, Lobzik gets adopted from the subway where he's been abandoned during the depression because the, the family that had him in their charge could no longer feed him. And he gets adopted by Betel the operator, and that's Betel the sewing machine operator, and his wife Molly, and their two children, Mulik the brother and Rivke the sister. And they are a kind of ideal sitcom family before sitcoms. It's really the era of radio plays. And every chapter has a self-contained plot with a rising action and a conflict and a climax where Lobzik somehow saves the day and then falling action and a, a denouement and it's all wrapped up neatly with a bow. And there are 12 of these stories. I was able to include two in Honey on the Page. I'm translating the rest of them now. I believe that they really want to be a graphic novel. So if there are any illustrators out there listening or anyone who's publishing children's literature and is looking for 
a great graphic novel with socially conscientious themes, please, please let me know. But if it's, if it's all right, I want to just tell you about a chapter that I did not include in Honey on the Page that has most explicitly to do with race and racial justice. Because Lobzik is a dog, he can kind of have it both ways. He can be preternaturally intelligent and kind, but he can also, on the other hand, be just a dog who's literally inhuman. And at one point, Mulek has his two best friends over, Jaime and Noah, or Noyach in the Yiddish, and Noyach happens to be an African-American boy who is a close friend of Mulek's from public school. Um, he attends public school in the morning, and he and his sister go to Yiddish school in the afternoon. And one day, for no good reason, Lobzik bites Noyach for no other reason than he has darker skin than the other kids on the block. And this rocks the children's world. This is the greatest possible offense. And imitating the grown-ups, they decide that they not only need to punish Lobzik right away, but they need to convene a tribunal of all of the children and to put Lobzik on trial. And Lobzik's sentence in this tribunal is a full week of ostracism during which nobody cuddles him, nobody pets him, nobody even talks to him because he has to be taught not to be a weiser chauvinist, which is the Yiddish term, literally means a white chauvinist, and it's the Yiddish term at that time for racism. And so by the end of the story, Lobzik learns that he has done a terrible thing and it must never be repeated. And he says at the end of the story, we, we have an omniscient narrator who's able to grant us access to Lobzik's thoughts. And he says at the end of the story that he would never again bite a black child, even for all of the, an entire houseful of lem chops. And so we know that Lobzik has learned his lesson and the children reading the story in 1935 have also hopefully learned their lesson. Mm. With their universal themes, the stories and poetry in Honey on the Page are not meant exclusively for Jewish children. Miriam, ultimately, why is it important to restore this body of work? I've been reading a lot lately about the idea that in their literature, children need mirrors and they need windows. In other words, children need to see their own experience reflected back to them. And they also need to gain a good, clear view into other cultures and other subcultures. And I think that this is particularly important in the United States right now. Um, it's really important at this political moment to connect with the indisputable fact that we are and we have been a nation of immigrants, a nation that has been so enriched by all of the different voices, languages, and subcultures that have come together to make the great American salad. And Yiddish is part of that. 
So I'm hoping that these stories um, will give a new kind of access and really, really open up that window for um, all kinds of Americans to learn about this part of the American heritage. And I also think that it's an important part of telling the modern Jewish story and the, the large, really kind of multicolored and, and chaotic story of the Jewish experience in the modern world, which did include so much migration and so many forms of acculturation, but also the preservation of this, this Yiddish heritage. Miriam Udell, from the laughter of a chicken essentially asking, what are we, chopped liver, to these very serious, important, and universal themes you touch upon. This book is beautiful, and I thank you so very much for joining us to talk about Honey on the Page. It has been my delight. And I would also just wish to mention that so much of the beauty of the book comes from the really vivid illustrations by, by Paula Cohen. Um, and it was wonderful working with her to get just the right look for the book. Emory University professor Miriam Udell. She collected and translated all of the Yiddish stories in her new book, Honey on the Page. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.